right. Please remain standing. Let me read from the book of Proverbs. We'll be reading again chapter 20, verses 12 through 28. To hear God's word. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Do not love sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will be satisfied with bread. It is good for nothing, cries the buyer. But when he has gone his way, then he boasts. There is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Take the garment of one who is surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge when it is for a seductress. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Page 2. Plans are established by counsel, by wise counsel wage war. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. Whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in darkness. His lamp will be put out in deep darkness. An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. Do not say, I will repay, right? Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord, and dishonest scales are not good. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy, and afterwards to reconsider his vows. A wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. You may be seated. Now, the structure of the text we're looking at, there's two major breaks Uh, Verses 12 through 19 is really focused upon deal-making, speech in the context of commerce. And verses 20 through 28 talk about how to think and speak in terms of justice and waiting for the king, waiting for the minister of God to take vengeance. And so... Together, we have consideration of speech in terms of commerce and justice, and the best commentary I have divides these into sort of two sections, but at the same time has them bridged in that there's a relationship between them. And the relationship is largely this. We think about how people speak while doing commerce, and it's one of the ways that people can cheat. It's one of the ways that people can steal from you is by negotiating in a dishonest way. And in that process, we can begin to see that somebody has stolen from us by deception. And so we can be tempted to consider that there's the possibility that this person needs to have justice enacted against them. And in that, we can be tempted to try to take vengeance ourselves rather than leaving it to the providence of God and leaving it to the minister of God in the magistrate. We can seek to extract vengeance and perhaps even seek to do so by force or by deception. And so neither one is a lawful recourse. Instead, 
We seek to do what God commands, rely upon God and his providence to provide, rely upon God and his providence to give justice, and in the end, we know even if in our lives here there is not an exaction of justice, we know that God will have the day of judgment, and there will be accounting of all. And so, let's continue now, and let's look at the text as it's broken down in your handout. So, verses 12 to 19 focus on deal-making. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Right, so you can think about this, and I think a lot of the time, the way that this is, is talked about, when you look at more modern commentaries or, or commentaries that aren't trying to draw together the various Proverbs, you'll find sort of this, you know, look, look at the magnificence of the ear that God has made. Look at the magnificence of the eye that God has made. Um, or perhaps you'll have it applied in terms of Reformed theology, and you'll have, you know, God is the one who causes the eye to see and the ear to hear, and, and man doesn't have the power to understand or have faith by himself. I think these are good applications of the proverb. But I think when you look at the connection to the rest of the text, you begin to see that the idea here is that God gives to you an eye to see and an ear to hear so that you can use them to be able to engage with other people so that you can look for opportunity to do good work and so that you can listen to engage in good work. And we're talking about commerce. Now, the Protestant ethic is one that looks at work for the exchange of, of, of goods, right? You're exchanging time for property. And you have this kind of classic thing that in our world, after the Protestant Reformation, entrepreneurialism is put in the context of serving the customer, the idea that we serve. And you can think about almost any good entrepreneurial book is going to start with this idea that what you need to do is look for a need. Look for something that you can do to serve other people. And you listen to customers. You listen to what they have to say. And you seek to serve them. And so this is true in a commercial context. And verse 13 connects in with this idea of do not love sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. Now think back there. We just talked about the seeing eye. So, you see how verse 13 is interpreting for us how to deal with verse 12? It is telling us, God made the ear, God made the eye, and guess what? You should open your eyes and work. That's the idea. You should open your eyes and work. Now, the immediate context, again, is talking about the idea of looking for opportunity to work, listening for opportunity to provide value, not wasting time, being productive, exercising dominion. And the idea that poverty or prosperity comes based upon whether you sleep or whether you wake and work. And again, we can think about this in terms of a more spiritual context and think about if we will not be awakened, if we will not learn, if we will not listen to the pleading of wisdom that is in the book of Proverbs, if we will not hear the Father that speaks to the Son, then, what happens is, we sleep and we do not have the riches of wisdom. And so, whenever we think about riches, Proverbs has given to us a thematic to say, what's better than riches? 
wisdom. And so we think about riches, and it's good to work for riches. It's good to work for wealth in order to have something to provide for yourself, to give an inheritance to your children, your children's children. It's good to have something to give to those who are in need. At the same time, of greater value than that is wisdom. And so there's a call to open the eyes to look for useful dominion work, but we have also this realization that what is more valuable than property is wisdom. Now, verse 14 goes for us into why is it that we need to have our eyes open in work and our ears in work? Well, because when you go into the marketplace to work, the buyer will tell to you, it is evil, evil. That's the literal language there. Now, in, in, in Hebrew, when you put the same word next to itself, the idea is that this is kind of like, you know, the generalissimo. It's, it's not just the general. This is the grand general. It's not just bad. This is like bad, bad, right? So what, what is this thing? This is junk. I don't even know why I want to buy this from you, but I'll tell you what. I'll take it if you'll give it to me for one-third of the price on it, right? So that, that sort of thing, right? When you, when you start to look at this, I don't even know why I'm talking to you about it. I don't even know why I'm offering you this. You better take it now before I change my mind. Right? That's what the buyer does. Anybody who's familiar with real estate, there's a, there's a saying amongst real estate agents, buyers are liars. You ever heard that? Anybody heard that? Why? Why are buyers liars? Buyers are liars because they don't have any recourse against them for their lives. A buyer can come in and say, I'd like to buy this house, and I've got 45 other opportunities for way better houses. But you know what? I'd like this one if I can get it for this price. Now, the shopping around, the tire kicking, it's a waste of time. And even if you accept that, because it's not in writing, it's not, it's not an offer that is necessarily enforceable. So there's sort of this ability to negotiate without consequence for the buyer. And this is true in a lot of contexts. If you can, if you can lie about a problem with the thing you're buying, there's almost never recourse. But the seller almost always has recourse. Mm -hmm. If you lie about what you're selling, you can get that canceled and they get their money back. They can perhaps cause you to have criminal penalties. This is generally been the case in history. So the buyer tends to come and exaggerate the problems. It's evil, evil, cries the buyer. But when he has gone his way, then he boasts. Can you believe this guy? He sold this to me for one shekel. What a... He's gone his way, he boasts. I am such a great negotiator. I am awesome. And what happens when you do that? When you proclaim to other people, I did this great job. Look how I negotiated this guy by defrauding him. What do you do to your reputation? Do people realize that you are willing to lie for a dollar? And when that's the case, which has happened? Has your situation in life improved or diminished? You may have gotten a great deal, but you have been trapped into boasting about your own dishonesty, and you have sold your reputation for trinkets and for momentary joint laughter about the negotiation you just got. That's what happens there. Now, when you go into the marketplace, 
you are confronted with the general public. And I'm not sure if you've engaged with the general public much or not, but the general public has interesting people in it. A wide variety, a smorgasbord of personalities. If you've ever had any customer service job, if you've ever had to be at a cash register, if you have had to deal with people that come in off the street to ask you for services, you have had a number of interesting experiences. And engaging with the general public, when you do business and you are dealing with people on very short-term transactions, you get the worst out of people. And so there's this tendency towards the very disconnected desire to lie to get a short-term transactional benefit. Now, verse 15, there is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Now, on the one side, there's this temptation to lie, to buy stuff cheaply, so you have more money and more stuff. And then to boast, the vain boasting about it. But we were reminded there is something more valuable than money or cheap goods. And it is knowledge, it is wisdom. And the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. And so what's being done here is a reminder that you should be careful to not engage in business by deceit. Don't be like the guy who says, bad, bad. Don't say that the thing you actually think is valuable is worthless. Instead, negotiate by deep insight. If you actually understand what you're trying to buy, if you actually understand your own situation well because you're diligent in it, if you wake up as opposed to being lazy, if you listen as opposed to being dull, and if you see as opposed to not looking around, not being diligent to search, then you can do business with skill. And you can, with great honesty, get deals that are worth getting. And so that diligence in labor to do honest trade and to make decisive moves based on insight is what we are called to. Now, verse 16 goes into the other aspect of dealing with people. So there's the dishonesty of the general public when you do business. But also in verse 16, there is the foolishness of the general public and the danger of doing business or giving credit to the general public. Why, why does that matter? Well, the larger the type of deal you're doing, the more likely it is you're not going to get paid at that second. Right? There's trade credit. There's the making of a deal and relying upon future payment. Well, verse 16 says, Take the garment of one who is surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge when it is for a seductress. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Verses 14 and 17 are two sides of a comparative chiasm. Okay, you can see we have verse 14 is the lying. It's good for nothing. And then he boasts about his gain. Verse 17, we have 
the bread that's gained by deceit and the sweetness of enjoying what you took by fraud. You go, this is basically free, or this is really cheap because of the fraud that I've committed. But afterward, his mouth will be filled with gravel. Well, in verse 14, he boasts. In verse 17, his mouth is filled with gravel. There's the sweetness and the gravel. My gravel is generally not very sweet. And the experience of having it in your mouth is typically something you want to end quickly. And so it's an unpleasant, unsweet feeling that follows. It begins with some sort of an immediate delight like most sins that we pursue. And then is followed by a pain, a displeasure that is far greater than the cheap bribe of the devil. And so... This boasting is actually a way in which there's this filling of the mouth with, gra- with gravel. Like I mentioned before, when you boast about dishonesty, the result is that you destroy your own reputation. And so there is this great destruction that comes. Reputation, we're told in the rest of the book of Proverbs, is more valuable than gold. Wisdom is more valuable than gold. Reputation is more valuable than gold. And this man is foolishly acting in order to get a trinket of value to get money or to get goods and he's boasting about it and so what he's doing is trading away his integrity and trading away his reputation and it feels sweet at the very beginning and results in having the mouth filled with gravel. Now, jumping back to verse 16, what we have is sort of verses 15 and 16, they relate to each other in this way. There's the value of gold, but the greater value of wisdom. And then there's the fool who wants to offer surety for another. Not just anybody, but a stranger who is a seductress. So we have somebody who's not rooted in the community, and in fact who has a reputation for dishonesty, or for not having integrity, not being reliable to avoid wickedness. And so if somebody else is coming and making an agreement and offering to back up the credit of somebody, and it's not for themselves, and that person is not rooted there, and in fact there's even a negative reputation, we're told, take the garment of that one. Take everything, even down to the garment of that one, as a surety. Now this creates some consternation amongst commentators. Why? Look at point seven. The question is, is this rhetorical sarcasm or is this a command? The, the, the thought is this. Exodus 22, verse 26 says, If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. In other words, you can take someone's garment as a pledge, but you can't hold it. Why is that? The idea is that the poor one who, who loses the use of that property will be cold will suffer significant immediate discomfort and pain and will curse you. And because you have oppressed your brother, the Lord will hear and the Lord will avenge. And so there's this idea of oppressing the poor, oppressing the one who does not have resources. And so people look at this and they go, that seems pretty universal. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, 
you should return it to him before the sun goes down. So this, where it says, take the garment of the one who's a surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge when it is for a seductress, this must be sort of rhetorical sarcasm, like we saw earlier in chapter 20. There was some rhetorical sarcasm back there. Remember the idea of, you know, sure, son, just stop your ears to instruction. That's great. So what we have is this question, is that what this is? And, and, and I would suggest that actually what we have is we do have a command here that it's not rhetorical sarcasm. And this is one of the many verses that helps to demonstrate the difference between charity loans and business loans. This is not talking about a charity loan of a brother seeking to get a garment for himself or seeking to get food for his immediate consumption. This is not a charity loan where you're not allowed to charge interest. This is a business loan. That is the context. And in the context of a business loan where somebody is taking a risk for the prospect of gain, not borrowing for their immediate consumption, it is lawful to extract interest. It is lawful to extract a markup. It is lawful to take any property as a pledge. And so that difference between a business loan and a charity loan is an important part of this context. And I want to point out to you, if you look at Exodus, I read to you verse 26 last time, but now let's look at the rest of the context. It's obvious that Exodus 22, verses 25 to 27, we're talking about a charity loan. So the prohibition exists for that. So the book of Proverbs plus the book of, Deuteron- or plus the book of Exodus here, they give us the way of looking at these two types of loans, the business loan and the charity loan. So Exodus 22, if you lend money to any of my people, so here it's a brother, who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest, right? Right there. The prohibition on charging interest on charity loans. Charity loans do not have any interest associated with them. That has been the practice of our diaconal ministry. We do not charge interest for a charity loan. Somebody has the ability to repay, great. No interest. You give the help. If somebody is in a condition where they are expected to have a long-term need to receive help, like you consider one of the older widows, you think about a, a mother who has children, who is, you, know, you, have, you have a widow with, with orphans, whatever, that kind of thing, you don't just give some sort of a charity loan for diaconal help. What you do is you provide grants to be able to get through it. This is not an expectation of being able to repay. Able-bodied men fall on hard times, you give them a charity loan, you expect them to repay without interest. That's the idea. So you have different types of diaconal help. The charity loan does not have interest associated with it. If you, Verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. So here's this, this idea. This is a charity loan. Don't charge interest and don't take as a pledge for that loan anything that they need for their immediate relief. And the garment is an example. Verse 27, for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. And that is supposed to cause fear in the one who is unwilling to give the charity loan without the cloak as the pledge. He's going to hear. He's going, 
God's going to hear this crying out. And that means he's going to hear the complaint about the one who took his garment. So, these two types of loan, the charity loan and the business loan. If somebody wants to borrow from you in a business context in order to make some deal happen, and you don't trust that person, then somebody else comes along and they've got some sort of history. And they say, I will be a surety for it. That should not be sufficient for you. You should go, what is going on here? Why is this person making such a foolish decision? I want the security. And so that's what's being told. And then there's the magnification. If that's the case with a seductress, hold it as a pledge. So there's an emphasis. It's a double statement. So this is telling you how to do business, how to take risks. And it's saying when somebody is promising to cover somebody you wouldn't normally do business with, take the security. In other words, take their promise. Don't do business without it. Why does this matter? Sometimes people will try to pressure you to do things that are foolish by making an offer like that. They'll say, yeah, I vouch for this guy. You should do business with him. Oh, really? You're vouching for him, so you're offering security. Well, I don't know about that. Well, if you're vouching for him, you're offering security, right? So if you have a security offer, I'll take it from you. Otherwise, I'm not doing business with them. That's the idea. You can push back. You can shift the uncomfortableness. They want to make you feel uncomfortable. You should trust this person. I'm vouching for them. That's social pressure. This is wise words of training. This is verbal judo. This is business judo. Great. I appreciate your promise. So what are you offering as security for them? And if the other person pushes back, I thought you trusted them. Oh, now they're the one that has to feel awkward about promising for the person. And so that right there, what we're receiving is training from Solomon about how to avoid accepting other people's social pressure in business. And that's the net effect. Now, page two. Mr. Nye, can you do me a favor? Can you grab that and put that at 35? Now, we get to the end of this first section on deal-making, and interestingly, it switches subject to war. Now, business leaders always like to find ways of finding analogies about war and business, mainly because it feels fun. But also, also, there are certain points of war that are simpler, and that make it so there's an analogy that's easier to get about business. And there are certain kinds of conflict in business. And those types of conflict about contracts, fraud, competition, are things where you have to plan as though you were planning for war. Something like that. You, you have a conflict that you have to deal with. And you have to rally resources, take risk, and there's the potential for loss. And the analogy of war helps to make it more clear that the risk-taking is occurring. Plans are established by counsel. By wise counsel, wage war. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. We have the conclusion of this set, right? We've, we've been talking about, you know, the beginning bridges the section from the past um, 
talks to us about the importance of looking for opportunity, being awake, looking for work to do. And then there's this danger of speaking foolishly in commerce, and we're told how to deal with that danger of the foolishness of other people in commerce. And then we get to the end here, and we're told we need to wisely make plans. And so plans are established by counsel. Make sure you talk with other people about it. Get wise counsel. You're going to put property at risk. You're going to put time at risk. Get wise counsel. It's not just get counsel from anybody. Verse 19. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. When you get counsel from people, do you have to like tell them things you wouldn't want everybody to know? Like, you have to give them enough information that they can give you good counsel. So you probably have to reveal to them some of your secrets in business or war, in life in general. And if you do that with a talebearer, they will take your secrets and make them not secret. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with the lips. We're just given there a marker of a talebearer. Does somebody flatter you? If they flatter you, they are unlikely to be somebody who can be trusted with secrets. Flattery is a warning sign of a gossiper. Now, you can sometimes sell a gossiper just for the fact that they gossip. And if you've got lots of evidence that they gossip, it's probably because you do too. But when people want to gossip, a lot of the time they feel out whether it's safe to gossip or not. And one of the ways they do that is by flattering. And so the flattery is a test to see, are you open to hearing them? And are you up for a good time? And here's a morsel of flattery. Do you like that? Was that pleasant for you? Let's talk about some other things. Let's talk about other people. Let's tear other people down a bit. That's the progress of checking. It's like you know, testing to see if the ice will fall through. And so the flattery is an early warning sign of gossip. So you need to find counselors that you can trust to keep your confidence. And here's the other problem with flatterers. They're going to tell you that's a great plan. You want people who are going to tell you that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. Did you think about this at all? And if they're willing to tell you that, if they're willing to express to you the level of stupidity of your plan in private while giving you confidential counsel, that person, that person cares about your well-being more than the temporary pleasure or favor that you might give them. The plans are established by counsel, by wise counsel wage war. The higher the risks, the more important getting a lot of counsel is, and the more important getting wise counsel is. And war is the most high-risk temporal activity. Many lives, much capital, much time put on the line. The freedom of a people at risk. And so this idea of how to deal with conflict in business, and when you think about lawsuits, when you think about competition, when you think about a major deal, all of a sudden, major deals, you have to worry more about the, it's bad, it's bad. Right? If you're buying a pot, that's one thing. If you're buying a business, that's another thing. If you're talking about hundreds or thousands of dollars, 
in terms of credit. You know, making the wrong decision about who to extend credit to might not destroy you. Talking about millions of dollars. The wise counsel. Plans are established by counsel. Wise count, by wise counsel, wage war. Notice here that verse 18 indicates the importance of planning. You want to exercise dominion and do it well, you have to plan. And in fact, you need to plan so much that you have to talk about it with other people and have other people examine that planning. You know what takes a lot of time? Talking about plans and arguing about them. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. So you want to start a business, you want to put capital at risk, write up a business plan, get people you trust, argue about it, get criticism, try to fix it. Listen with the ear and look with the eye. And that's a part of what's going on here. So this is the context for the council. And be careful who you get counsel from. The second part, starting at verse 20. We're moving now into when you have the context of somebody cheating you or somebody taking credit and not paying, right? What you have is this issue of how do, you, how do you deal with that? Verse 20 starts with, Whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. You know, it's one thing to have somebody deceive you. It's one thing to have somebody steal from you. But what about a child that harms their parent in order to get an inheritance quickly? Whoever curses his father or mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. There's, you know, it's a classic plot line. This is the heir to a fortune. Did he have a motive for killing the guy who had the fortune before him? There's a lot of insurance on this person. I wonder who might have killed them. Right? These, these are classic storylines. They're storylines that are believable for a reason. People like money, and if all that's in between you and lots of money is the breathing of another person, maybe that breathing could be stopped. And that being the case, the desire to hide that is obviously high. So you find a way of trying to deceive. So now there's deception, theft, murder all tied up. The inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. We have another example of this. It was the parable of the, the prodigal son, the forgiving father, the older brother, right? We have that from Jesus where there's, there's the man who, who asks his father to give him his inheritance early, takes the money, wastes it all. He's a prodigal son. He recognizes that he's in a terrible situation, comes back, asks for forgiveness. The father welcomes him with open arms. The older son is angry. Why are you throwing him a party? You, know, you haven't thrown me a party. father says, look, everything I have is yours. But he was dead. He's back. That's another kind of way that could happen. This sort of foolish asking for the inheritance early and the squandering it. These are kind of different ways that you could get an inheritance early. It's by the early death of the one that you're heir to or by getting it early in a way that dishonors the parent. Now, cursing the father or mother, when you curse somebody... You're asking for condemnation on them. You're asking for their death. And if you 
try to take the money from them early, that's sort of a way of expressing, why won't you die yet? You see the, the way that those are dishonoring. Now, there's a way that, that parents who have wealth, they should gradually pull in the children to manage the estate and allow them to enjoy the fruits of the estate in that process, the, the fruits of management reward. If you don't do that with your children and you have any sort of estate, they're going to have to figure it out when you're gone and can't give them wisdom. And so what you do is you train them up with the estate that you have, have them to participate in the running of that estate, and they share in the fruits of the management of the estate, and then eventually they become owners of that estate. That's not what's being talked about here. So whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. When you curse father or mother, you're obviously rejecting their wisdom. Without parents to teach, without teachers who are interested in our well-being, the likelihood of us learning is much lower. Your lamp, the light of the mind, the, the clarity of your thought, the thing you use to direct yourself so that you can see the way that you ought to go, it will be put into deep darkness. Now, if a lamp is in deep darkness, there's a couple of problems. First of all, the, plant, the lamp is apparently not working. It's supposed to give light, and if it's deep darkness around it, it's not putting light out. And secondly, you've apparently gotten very far away from the other lights. Deep darkness. The idea is, if you curse your parents, if you won't listen to the instruction of those with authority over you, legitimate authority, you are darkening your own mind, and you are escaping those who would give you light. And so the duty to honor those with legitimate authority is put before us. And it tends towards a rejection not only of the parental authority, but a desire to extract all of the benefits, all of the blessings of parental authority without any of the restraints. I want the inheritance. I want it early. And because the taking of that inheritance involves the absence of wisdom, it does not end well. Our culture is filled with this on a mass scale. Cultural Marxism is essentially the process of saying we hate everything that any white man ever did. We want all the money they piled up in Western civilization and America. And we'd like to reject all of the values of white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism. Now, why is race attached on? Christianity is not about race. It's attached on because whiteness becomes a replacement for Christianity. And maleness as a replacement for legitimate authority. So you say, the patriarchy must be stopped. You say, whiteness is a curse. And then, because we've all been trained to not say anything positive about whiteness, we can't defend it at all. So that's what you see in the broad culture right now in terms of that kind of anti-Western civilizationism. It's designed to look like if you defend any of the good elements of Western civilization, you are defending racism. Well, the only thing good about Western civilization is the parts that are Christian. Western civilization is full of sin. 
but the degree that it had a greater influence of Christianity on it for a period of time, those elements are better than cultures that haven't had that influence of Christianity on it. And in the future, if things continue the way they are going, there will be lots of people who are not white with way better culture than people who are white. And that's because we see Christianity moving to Latin America, to Africa, and to China. And so unless that's reversed, not necessarily reversed as in stopped going there, but unless the decline of Christianity is stopped here, there will be no expectation except that those cultures will far exceed ours as they enjoy the work that was done by the church before them and build upon it. My hope would be to see that that occurs there and that we stop the rejection of Christianity here and see building go further here. So in our culture, when you see the idea of whiteness and patriarchy attacked, those are code words for the rejection of the Protestant heritage of America. That is largely what is actually meant. Now, there are real sinful racist acts, and there are abuses of women that occur, that have occurred, that continue to occur. And those, when there are actions motivated out of that kind of hatred, they should be punished like any crimes that are motivated by hatred. And so the penalties that the Bible lays out for the punishment of crime are just penalties, whatever type of hatred it is motivated out of. So our culture, as it curses the fathers and mothers that we have and curses the heritage that we have, we can expect it to go out into deeper darkness. So may God prevent that. Verse 22, do not say I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Many people are trying to sort of respond back to these things, this kind of woke stuff, by coming back with a white nationalism or something to that effect. Do not buy the lie. Do not respond with that. Racism is not the appropriate response to racism. If you pick up a godless, secular nationalism, you will be rejecting the political order that is given by God in his law. What we need to do is to look for the justice that is laid out in God's word and to see it given in proper order. And so we need to make sure that we don't respond with any sort of foolish counter-racism. Do not say, I will recompense evil. You don't take vengeance for yourself in general, in particular business deals, or on a societal level. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Waiting for the Lord is not doing nothing. Waiting for the Lord is doing your duty in your sphere and doing it with excellence while praying and asking for God to bring about salvation. It doesn't mean you don't defend yourself if you're attacked. It doesn't mean that you fail to do an assertive effort to influence people and to gain resources and to seek to lawfully enter into public office. But you wait for the Lord. You don't put your trust in princes. You don't put your trust in money. You do your duty and pray for God to bless it. Verse 23, 
reminds us, says, diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord and dishonest scales are not good. Now, we see this over and over again in Proverbs and it's always sort of like, okay, great, don't counterfeit, don't, don't cheat people by giving them the wrong amount of stuff or overcharging them. We talked about how the fiat currency system is a mechanism that, that essentially uh, you know, deceives people about the value of money over time, and so that's a form of diverse weights and measures. The, the cheating by not uh, fulfilling Federal Reserve notes with the gold promises that used to exist, those are all a type of diverse weights and measures. But in this context, why is it being brought up? It's being brought up because we are in danger of thinking that we will recompense evil ourselves. We are in danger of wanting to extract vengeance for ourselves. And so, whereas these other people have done us wrong, we think to ourselves, I can extract vengeance. I can do harm to these people without authority. They've done harm to me. And what we're doing now is we're applying a double standard. It's diverse weights and measures. We're saying they can't do wrong to me, but I can do wrong to them. And so the desire to extract vengeance for yourself is a diverse weights and measures. It is a form of dishonesty and fraud. So then verse 24 reminds us, A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? God controls what people do. His steps are from God. How can you understand your way then? Should you be pragmatic? No, you do not know what the results will be from your actions. So do what God commands and trust Him. That's the idea there. We have a duty to obey His law. He controls the outcome. Verse 25, is a snare for man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. We look around and we sometimes have this stupid thought. The law of God is boring, is insufficient to give me a meaningful life. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to promise to do more than God commands. That will make things interesting. And then life is hard. And then you start to go, you know, this promise was hard to fulfill. I probably shouldn't have made this promise because life is not boring and God's law is not easy. That vow probably wasn't binding. Maybe I shouldn't have made that vow, therefore maybe it's void? Right? This is the tendency we have when we make vows, promise things to God, devote things to God. And so the warning here is, if you think the Christian life is easy and you think God's law is easy, be careful. Don't make a bunch of rash vows to God. I have met people who have vowed to give more than the tithe. And I warned them, I said, you should be careful, don't increase that vow. Because you might not always be doing so well. Instead, meet the tithe and give free will offerings as the Lord prospers you. So that warning is the type of warning that's here in verse 25. It's a snare for man to devote rashly something is holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. It's a trap to go beyond the law. Vowing and not fulfilling brings great curse. Do not do it. Verse 26, A wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. So 
But we just left the middle part, and it sort of tells us life is hard, trust God, and then it says when things are good, don't rashly vow, don't presume on God. Right? That's how the middle does. And we get to the end here of this section, and it says, A wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. Think about the analogy of sifting. Sifting requires a sieve. The law and due process of the sieve. Examination. Calling witnesses. Getting evidence. That's the sieve. The wise king does the hard work of trying to carefully make a sieve that allows the innocent to get through. But it stops a guilty. You have perhaps flour. It's been ground down. And, and you're through that sieve having the flour pass. You want the whole grains to be caught. And then when the whole grains are caught, you put them in a place where the wheel, the threshing wheel, will crush them. Now, that points to a few things. The idea that you have to be able to differentiate between the innocent and the guilty. The other thing is the idea that there's a, a punishment, a crushing, a painful punishment, a crime. And also, what does the threshing wheel do? It turns it into flour. And the next time, it will pass through the sieve. The idea is that the magistrate's punishment has a reforming effect. It's not the principal concern. The principal concern is restoring what was lost to the one who's harmed. There's a, a also a, a penalty to be exacted, and there's a deterrent effect. But also a side benefit of the civil magistrate punishing crime is that it reforms some of the people who are punished. A wise king sifts out the wicked, and he brings the threshing wheel over them. Now, a king should not pardon people who commit crimes against other people. The king should punish criminals and demand repayment as much as possible for the just amount to the one harmed. Verse 27, the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. More literally, it's the rooms of the belly. That's an Egyptian phrase. Um, so this idea of the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord. The idea is a conscience, the conscience of a man, finds all of the skeletons in the closet in that man's soul. Why does this matter? A wise king sifts, but guess what? Sometimes things other than flour get through. Sometimes the guilty get through. And so, should you allow that to make you cynical? No. God will use the conscience of the one who gets away with it in this life to condemn him on the day of judgment. And so, God searches out all of the rooms of the belly, all the inner depths of the heart and he will not be able to escape. And this also provides encouragement in verse 28 to the magistrate. Mercy and truth preserve the king. The king should be very concerned for true testimony and for right judgment, but also mercy. Mercy, what, why mercy? 
Does this, does this first justify a bunch of welfare programs? Well, mercy ministry, by the magistrate, just transferring tons of wealth, let's just extract it by taxation. No, that's not what this is about. The next, the next part of the verse explains, and by loving kindness, and it's the same word as mercy above, so mercy and truth preserve the king, and by mercy he upholds his throne. What's the idea here? We're told elsewhere that justice is the foundation for the throne, that by justice is the throne established. Mercy for crimes against the king. If you're a magistrate and you have the power to avenge, be very careful about avenging for yourself. Be quick to forgive those who offend your honor and dignity and authority. And this goes back to the reminder about parents who are cursed. He who curses father or mother, his lamp will go in outer darkness. If you want to preserve your authority when you have parents that are in rebellion, there needs to be some place for mercy. And if you are a magistrate and somebody is bucking at your authority, one of the best ways to bolster your authority is to forgive offenses against your own honor. Comments, questions? Objections from voting members and those with speaking rights. Okay, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to be able to speak and do commerce and administer justice wisely and well. I ask that you would help us to deal with false secular philosophies and false religious philosophies. That you would help us to search the scriptures and see if these things are so be able to consider carefully what you have revealed. We ask that you would help us to apply it wisely, that you would help us to be able to exercise dominion and rule and to do it in a way that honors you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm sorry, one more prayer that I keep forgetting. Uh, we have some people that are traveling and also in a particular situation. Let's, let's pray again. Father, we ask that you keep the Roberts safe as they travel and the Coatneys as they travel for a funeral. Father, we ask that you would cause uh, the Buchanans, who uh, we have been told about by Ms. Clark, that you would cause the uh, Buchanans to be given strength, that you would cause Mike to be able to serve his wife well, and that you would cause Mrs. Buchanan to be able to uh, heal, that you would help her to recover, that you would uphold both of their faiths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.